From Islamic Finance News, the world's leading Islamic finance news provider, this is IFN Podcast. Hello and welcome to the IFN Weekly Podcast. My name is Nasreen and I'll be your host today. With me in this episode is DLA Piper's Paul McVitie, the head of Islamic finance for the Middle East, and Suhail Ali, the legal director in London. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Um, I wanted to start off by talking about, you know, we mentioned that there are opportunities in, you know, globalizing Islamic finance. Um, perhaps we could start with that. That that's, sounds like something that could be exciting. Sure, happy to kick off on that. Um, I think undoubtedly, you know, the last 12 months have been challenging for, for many sectors, in particular financial services, and within that, of course, Islamic financial services. But I think, um, you know, there, there have been a number of, of positives, particularly within the Islamic finance industry, in terms of how it's responded to uh, to those challenges. Mm-hmm. I think in particular, what we've seen is a, a, a rapid growth in uh, the digitalization of uh, Islamic finance. So yeah, not, not just fintech, but digital transformation generally, mm-hmm. uh, I think has been pushed to the forefront of, of, of lots of stakeholders within the industry to the forefront of their minds, simply because you know, in responding to the challenges of COVID um, and remote working in, working in particular, I think you know the, the the Islamic finance industry has had in many ways to to rise to the challenge, um, and, and in doing so, obviously technology has played a significant role in that. Right. Uh, I mean, do you think that Islamic finance in general was ready for this? Was it always going to go digital? Or uh, I, I think, um, well, uh, taking a step back and looking at, um, I think financial services more generally. I mean, you know. Fintech and digital transformation is um, something that certainly the the industry has been grappling with for the last three to five years. And obviously, um, some players are further ahead than others. Um, Some regions are are further ahead than others. But in many ways, I think uh, the the pandemic has been, you know, a a leveler of the the playing field, so to speak, in that everyone was was forced to, you know, take a step back and, and work out how uh, you know, the, the challenges could be tackled, at least in the, the short to medium term. And I think as a result of that, you know, the, the, the digital transformation initiative has certainly ri- risen up the agenda for a lot of institutions. Right. Do you have any thoughts on this, Sahir? Yeah, just in terms of um, the opportunities for Islamic finance, I share Paul's sort of enthusiasm and excitement. I think there are huge opportunities for Islamic finance uh, globally. And I, I personally don't even think we've scratched the surface in terms of the potential so far. Um, I, I think there are almost 1.8 billion Muslims in the world uh, and more than half are still unbanked. And I think that's just a, a reflection of, I think, the scale of the opportunity. Um, and, and, and then you've got the majority of the Muslim world um, where there are even greater opportunities. Um, I think awareness, particularly in non-Muslim jurisdictions about Islamic finance is growing. Um, we're seeing that particularly in the Western world. I see that here in the UK, which is, which has now been regarded as almost the hub for Islamic finance. Right. Um, so, so I think I think it's hugely uh, exciting. Um, and like Paul says, I think uh, in some respects, um, Islamic finance probably is well placed 
to come out of this pandemic. Um, I appreciate it's not quite the same uh, situation as it was in 2008, where the issue was sort of interest-based and there was a credit crisis. Um, but to a certain degree, I think Islamic finance may fare slightly better. And that's because of the, the conservative Sharia-based principles, which, which shy away from um, speculative and volatile markets, and, and they're based much more on risk-sharing features. Uh, and that, in my view, I think makes it a, a much more robust uh, global financial system. I should just add that uh, I'm, a, I'm a litigator, um, and so I have the benefit of seeing disputes uh, come across my desk. Uh, and the one observation I would make is that the extent of the litigation uh, that I see in the Islamic finance sector is far smaller Mm. Uh, than saying conventional finance. And, and I do think that Islamic finance principles um, have a large part to play in that. Interesting. And, you know, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a very tricky year. Um, do you think that the progress, like I, I, I basically want to ask about what you think of the progress that the, the Islamic finance industry has made within that year. How, how do you think they've handled, you know, the, the entire pandemic and adjusting to it, basically? Well, I, th- I think it comes on to uh, some of the, the other points that I, I know we're going to talk about today. And mm-hmm. really the focus of the industry, you know, perhaps it, 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 in a sense, you know, taking the opportunity to take a step back and, and look at other areas where the industry can do better. Um, and I know we're going to talk about ESG and you know, the transition towards a greener economy. And I think it's 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 a good time for us to delve into that one, Nasreen. Yeah, let's do it. Well, I think, um, look, I, I think generally, um, you know, as before the transition to a green economy has, you know, again, risen up the agenda for, for a lot of people. We've seen certainly in, in Europe, uh, a lot of legislation that is directed towards making sure that uh, environmental, social and governance principles are embedded not just within uh, the, the, the structures of, of institutions and, and corporates, but are also, you know, a legal and regulatory benchmark when it comes to how businesses move forward. And I think um, the Islamic finance industry has, in a way, been responding to that and acknowledged that through a, a lot of debt capital markets activity in the form of Sukuk, in particular, mm-hmm. green and sustainable Sukuk and more recently, of course, with Etihad's uh, transition to cook, uh, a focus on, you know, making sure that the products that are being developed within the Islamic finance industry are responding to these uh, these re- these requests, you know, these these uh, benchmarks when it comes to uh, to looking towards the future and looking to build something that's more sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. The ISDB, for instance, has recently issued a sustainable sukuk that is linked to a new um, interbank rate. Maybe, Suhail, you have something to say about this, the, the London interbank offered rate for our listeners um, and the impact that it has on, on Islamic finance. Yeah, I, I suspect um, Paul is probably better placed um, to to answer that question as he's more uh, hands-on involved day-to-day on structuring the transactions and, and will know the impact. But I think in right. in, in, a, in a nutshell, um, I think it has, you know, to, to a certain degree, people uh, may have initially thought that um, LIBOR and the transition away from LIBOR doesn't impact Islamic finance in the same way as it does conventional finance. And I don't think that that's right. I think it has quite a significant impact. And the use of overnight or backward looking rates 
uh, and the sort of lack of certainty and visibility that that entails, certainly for some of the transactions that Paul will be drafting and structuring on a day-to-day basis, like a Murabaha transaction, mm-hmm. is, is very important and, and presents uh, presents its you know the challenges of its own. Paul and I have discussed this previously, and I think we we think it's you know complicated in terms of uh, the, the solutions and and the practical steps that lenders need to take. But I, I'll defer to Paul on this um, to, <laughs> to sort of discuss. Right. Go ahead, Paul. No, Sahil's absolutely right. I think, you know, the the challenge that Ibor Transition presents for the Islamic banking industry is a very significant one. Um, I mean, when you you look at uh, the prevalence of US dollar funding uh, and therefore US dollar LIBOR rates within uh, the Islamic finance industry, I mean, it's a a massive, massive part of, um, of, 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 of the industry itself. And you know, the, the basis on which a lot of funding arrangements have been structured. So the move from uh, effectively what is a forward-looking rate, uh, you know, LIBOR published in one, three, six, or 12-month format, uh, you know, a screen rate that you can pull off Reuters, etc. you know, and, and moving to something at the moment that people are, are grappling with and trying to understand by way of, you know, a, a backward-looking rate, um, obviously the, the, the alternatives are backward-looking as, as opposed to forward-looking. So you've got SOFA, which is the one that is, is the most um, linked to US dollar funding, which is the secured overnight funding rate. Mm-hmm. And, and what these risk-free rates do is whilst they move uh, away from, you know, the concerns that triggered all of this, which was, uh, as many of our listeners will know, um, it was related to the manipulation of LIBOR and the fact that, uh, you know, forward-looking rates could um, unfortunately be, um, uh, be, be, be manipulated in the way that we saw um, uh, manifest itself uh, a few years ago. Um, the, the, the reality is that uh, overnight funding rates, backward-looking rates are, are less easy to, um, uh, to, to tinker with. And as a result of that, you know, you you have to go back to basics when it, it comes to how these um, products are, are looked at. And as Sahil quite rightly said, you know, one of the key principles of Marabaha contracts is that your profit is fixed at the, the start of the period. Uh, you look forward, you effectively work out how many days of profit are going to accrue on your commodities trade. And it's priced in uh, on the settlement date. And of course, with the issue with uh, a backward looking rate is that that's not possible. Now, when you delve into the detail of, of SOFA and also SONYA, which is the sterling overnight uh, interbank average rate, uh, the reality is that these are incredibly complex rates in terms of how they are calculated. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are um, observation shifts or no observation shifts, depending on the preference of financial institution involved, just in terms of how they, they want to fix the rate. And it, it really does present an issue when it comes to structuring not just Marabaha transactions, but also Ijara transactions, where the rental is set at the beginning of the period uh, as well. Now, as you just touched upon this stream, you know, mm-hmm. encouraging news from Islamic Development Bank, because they have just issued uh, a SOFA linked to Cook, which is excellent right. news. And it does demonstrate that the industry is prepared uh, and is able to, to rise to the challenge and come up with solutions. And I think, you know, taking a step back, this is, you know, similar in many ways to, you know, the challenges that the industry has been faced with 
over the years. I mean, I remember, you know, 2008, um, AOFI's pronouncement around certain Sukuk structures uh, mm. and, the, and, and the challenges that were raised with Musharraq and Madaraba and Wakala-based structures at that time, compounded, of course, by the global financial crisis yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact of the matter is that the industry responded then. Uh, it's been able to respond now. Um, I think tying in with this as well, as, as you'll be aware, there's the AOFI Sharia Standard 59 issue, which is affecting commodity Murabaha structures as well. And again, I, you know, I think the industry is coming together and collaborating and, and, and working towards solutions for these things. In fact, you know, I'm aware that a number of institutions are trying to tie in their transition or rate switch arrangements um, and the structuring of, of, in particular, their commodity Murabaha products with you know, solutions to the Sharia standard 50 59 issue as well so right. I, I think um you know it, the the response is is encouraging and as i say to see islamic development bank having already issued a soft link to cook is, is brilliant news um but but coming back to the, the point that we were talking about at the beginning just in mm -hmm. terms of um of of, of vsg um I, I know having talked with sahail that you know we we, we both have fairly strong views on um, the Islamic finance industry synergies with ESG and 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 and, and what it could be doing there. Um, I'll, I'll let let Sahail talk more about that side of things because I know uh, he's quite he's quite passionate about it. Okay. Yeah, I, I know ESG is, is such a hot topic and it's a buzzword at the moment. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons why Paul mentions um, that it's a topic that I, is, is quite close to me is I, I recently wrote an article about what ESG funds can learn about Islamic finance or learn from Islamic finance. And the beauty in many respects is that um, ESG and the principles on which it's based um, are not at all new to Islamic finance. I mean, Islamic mm. finance has been advocating sustainable and equitable behaviours and practices um, for almost 1,450 years. Mm. Um, and, and what you've also got, interestingly, is the role of Sharia board scholars. And, and they almost act as a safety valve to ensure that people are not riding roughshod over, over long-term interests for short-term gains uh, or invest in certain types of in industries that might cause societal or social, uh, social harm. And, and we now see that model being adopted uh, with impact investing and their screening approach. Uh, and that's exactly... Uh, the you know the model that effectively Islamic finance is based on. I mean, I recently did uh, a Harvard Business School course on sustainability and business practices. Okay. And what really struck me when I did that course was when the lecturer was talking about the need to focus away from maximizing profits and shareholder value to maximizing value for all stakeholders. Right. Stakeholders. It almost could have been a lecture on Islamic finance for exactly. me because the focus on you know, that focus on developing a culture of risk sharing between parties, interdependence, uh, that collaboration, uh, so that a transaction benefits all of the stakeholders, not just a party. Um, that's, it's, that's essentially what Islamic finance is based on. So I think um, Islamic finance has a really pivotal role and is really well placed to take the lead on ESG. Yeah. Um, I think on that same note, maybe we could also talk about some other solutions that you both can speak on. And I think maybe we could start with litigation. So, Hale, maybe you could tell us about what solutions in Islamic finance transactions can be, you know, considered. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I'll talk about a couple of things. Um, but the first, uh, what we saw recently in uh, disputes that arose over the last couple of years that I think most of the industry will have seen uh, the Dana gas uh, issue right. uh, and the challenge that was potentially raised uh, with transactions being called into question in terms of their Sharia compliance. Mm. A very simple thing, I think, a very practical step, which I think uh, practitioners, legal practitioners should take, is, is just to try and make sure that there's a representation that's been given in the underlying documents at the time to say that documentation is Sharia compliant and it's lawful and that the parties will not be challenging the Sharia compliant nature of the documentation. I think that's a very easy fix, uh, a nice way of ensuring that you don't get issues um, where parties may, may seek to try and challenge the, the, the veracity uh, of uh, the Sharia compliance uh, of transactions. Mm. In terms of what else, I think one of the one of the things that we're seeing at the moment, and we've been seeing a wave of um, uh, sort of uh, funders coming in from the US and Australia uh, over the last few years, is, uh, is 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 third party litigation funding, and that is something I think is very relevant uh, and will be of interest to the Islamic finance industry. Um, mm. So sitting here in the UK, um, we've seen uh, a lot more uh, funders arrive uh, predominantly from the US. And essentially what third-party funding is, is where someone who's not involved in a litigation or an arbitration provides funds to a party, to a litigation, mm-hmm. in exchange for an agreed return. Okay. Uh, and that funding will uh, cover the the legal costs and expenses involved in the litigation arbitration. And I think the beauty of this is that what it does is it frees up capital for mm-hmm. a party. So if you've got a if you've got an Islamic finance lender, its primary role is to lend uh, in order to make a in order to make a return. Um, spending money on litigation can be expensive. It it turns the focus away from its core business, but also what it does is it introduces that risk and that element of uncertainty that if I lose this litigation, uh, I could potentially be left to foot quite a substantial bill. And I think it's very relevant now because obviously with the pandemic, uh, there are more defaults, there are more non-performing loans, there's going to be a lot more tension uh, and pressure for, for lenders and borrowers generally. Um, and people generally say that through a recession or a downturn, Usually, in an uptick uh, in litigation, and what we uh, DLA Piper uh, have come up with is uh, we established an independent company uh, called Aldersgate Funding Limited, and what okay. this does is it provides our clients with access to 150 million pounds for funding uh, litigation or their arbitration claims. Um, mm. And and the unique selling point, I guess, of our product is that it offers better terms more quickly. Uh, than any other litigation funder in the market. Uh, And we're able to do that because normally a funder would go to a law firm or counsel to try and get early assessment as to whether or not a case was a case, was a meritorious case and worth taking on. By having that in-house, essentially, DLA is able to provide that early assessment to the funding arm uh, and it can reach that decision a lot quicker. So in, in a nutshell, what it, it does, and I think it's—I personally think it's a bit of a game changer—is uh, it enables genuine meritorious claims to be pursued without 
the risk that if you lose, you'll be on the hook for adverse costs. Uh, and, and therefore, that will allow parties to actually go after and recover monies where there is genuinely a claim to be pursued. Gotcha. Okay, that's, I think, something to look forward to. Paul, is there anything else you want to add in terms of like exciting products that our listeners can keep an eye out for, maybe from DLA Piper in specific, but maybe in general as well? Yeah, no, ha- happy to. And, and, and look, the, the, the Aldersgate funding platform that Sahil was just talking about ties in more generally with a, a program that we have called Law And. And really, it's about how we redefine the way that we're doing business as a law firm. Mm-hmm. And, and a massive component of that is focusing on, uh, as I was talking about earlier, technology, to, technology and digital transformation. Um, of course, uh, you know, digital transformation is undoubtedly affecting uh, the financial services sector, but it's also affecting the ways in which law firms do business uh, and forcing us, like our clients, to think about what we do next and how we do it. Um, you know, the, the one thing that, you know, is clear that blockchain, it, 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 blockchain technology um, is, is establishing itself, you know, and whilst there, there, there arguably is a, a degree of stigma perhaps attached to, yeah. you know, cryptocurrency and, you know, the, the, the speculation within that component, there's no doubting that blockchain to- technology itself is providing, you know, solutions and smart contracts um, where, you know, inevitably there is going to be a, a, a massive change to the way in which, you know, contracts are traditionally executed and, of course, the role that lawyers play in that process. So one of the things that we have as a firm invested quite heavily in is looking at, um, you know, that technology and seeing where as a law firm we we can fit in. We've even got a, a, a digital asset creation engine called TOCO, uh, okay. which is effectively a, a tokenization product that we uh, we were able to deploy and use with our clients, also giving them the benefit of, you know, a practical solution to a lot of their tokenization needs, as well as, you know, a legal services solution as well. So I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, that the traditional model of a law firm is, is, is long gone. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're having to change in the same way as our clients are. And having a focus on that, I think, is just making us, you know, quicker to market with a lot of this yeah. stuff as well. Yeah, I think that's actually a good thing, maybe. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think one of the key things as well, you know, I'm, I'm based uh, in, in Dubai in the Middle East. And, you know, we have a, a very supportive uh, regulatory framework around us, you know, lots of regulatory sandboxes that are all, you know, designed to encourage innovation. Um, and, and, you know, that is, is, is the future. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, I think that's our time, but I wanted to ask you one final question before we end this episode. I wanted to ask if there are any specific new markets that maybe DLA Piper is looking at, um, especially in terms of Islamic finance. Are there any other markets that you think, you know, are worth looking into? That's a good question. Um, I, I was reading the other day, actually, that there are 46 countries across the globe that have taken regulatory steps to encourage the growth of Islamic finance, mm. um, which I think is a, a fantastic number. Um, and I think in amongst that 46, there are obviously, 
you know, some countries such as the UK who are uh, definite ones to watch, um, uh, particularly post-Brexit with the Bank of England's liquidity or, or rather alternative liquidity facility that's now available. And of course, more recently, the second sovereign to cook there. Right. I, I, I think the UK is, is, is definitely one to, one to watch, but there are others as well. I mean, we, we've talked often about Africa and the opportunity there mm-hmm. um, to Sir Hale's point earlier on about, you know, uh, the availability of, 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 of banking and making people who are unbanked bankable, um, you know, through technology solutions as well. I think Africa undoubtedly is going to continue to be a very important market for Islamic finance and one that certainly we're, we're very focused on. Um, right. Australia uh, have announced that they're going to um, uh, effectively set up a, a, what I believe is a, a digital Islamic bank. Yes. Uh, so that is, that's fantastic news there. But the, one, the other one that I did want to mention is Iran. Um, and, and largely because of the change in the U.S. administration and whether Correct. or not, you know, that change in the U.S. administration um, makes a difference in terms of, you know, the current sanctions, uh, perhaps a, a loosening of those so that, you know, Iran can come back to the fold in terms of um, in, in terms of the Islamic finance industry. Because really, for me, I, I think it is a sleeping giant in many ways uh, mm-hmm. with, with, with lots of opportunity there. Yeah, especially as it's a it's a fully Islamic financial system as well. Exactly, um, exactly. Mm, anything you um, anything that you want to add, Sahil? That was a very comprehensive list by by Paul, <laughs> and I think he has he's probably taken everything that I was going to say. Um, the only the only two small points I would say are one uh, Islamic fintechs we're seeing a growth of uh, in the UK and in Europe. I think the UK is certainly leading the way, so it's an area that we have great expertise and we are very focused on uh, assisting our clients with. And the other point I was going to make, uh, which again, Paul mentioned, um, we're seeing more institutions, financial institutions, looking to acquire Islamic finance, Sharia compliant banking licenses. So we see that in Australia. We're talking to a client in the UK at the moment. And I think that as Islamic finance grows globally, that is something that will increase. And given our global footprint and the fact that we have such a strong global Islamic finance practice, uh, that is something I think we are keenly looking to Uh, support and assist our clients with absolutely all right well um that's that's our time thank thank you nestream for for having us no thank you so much for being here with me thank you for listening for more discussions on the islamic finance industry log on to www.islamicfinancenews.com you can also listen to ifn podcast on your favorite platforms including itunes and spotify